working nine to five for the weight make living. Guess what I was just listening to? Guess, guess I was listening to Nine to Five by the majestic, the Queen Dolly Parton. I say the Queen, but then you know, I'm a fake fan who knows like two of her songs. Don't tell her that. Listen, because <laughs> the point I was just about to make, just based on one of her earliest hits, she would have probably liked the idea of why I created the channel. She would have liked the podcast. She would have loved the channel. Somebody get Dolly on this train, please. She would love this. She'd be like, yeah, bitch, quit your jobs, everybody, and start doing some creative work. Okay, speaking of creative work, today, yet again, I'm trying to direct more and more people onto my YouTube channel. The channel is called Mayama Bengeza and I post extra content there. And here I really was interested in this story because it was the inspiration for Killing Eve, the TV series. Watched it. Sandra O oh is in it. Like, you, you must watch this shit. This is like <laughs> also based on a real story, which you will find out today. But this month on the BAM Network, give me, give me a drum roll, give me a drum roll, somebody. While I cough, while I sneeze at you, um, give me a drum roll. It's the month of political crimes. And at least one of them that I want to cover, like, will just break your heart. I think we're gonna go into that one next week. So this one, I have somebody that I hope you don't see as an inspiration, because she was not inspiring. But with her, I need your help to deduce her motives. Because she was definitely an interesting character. That would be the understatement of the day. She killed about 23 people, but you know. Before I play you what I already recorded for that channel, let's have two expressions of the day, because I know I missed out last week. I played again the episode from the channel. What did you think about Anu Singh's case, by the way? That she was insane. Do you think she would have done it without the audience? Do you believe any part of her story? Or any part of her defense, should I say? Listen to that case. That case and Kelly Lane, still, to this day, Australian cases, something else. Just something different. I just need to make a whole podcast just focusing on Australian cases, because it has come to that, okay? In my freaking accent. Yes. Take it or leave it. Everybody's, like, leaving it. Sorry. Bye. It's like we have case file, bitch. Like, can't compete with this. Okay, two expressions of the day. First expression is to butter somebody up. What could it mean? What could it possibly mean? Well, if you're anything like me, it just straight up means to suck up to somebody. But in such a cunning way that you are, you know, buttering them up, you're making them like you, most probably because you want something out of that, you know, you want to ask for a favor. You butter up your manager to ask them for a promotion and not to see how many mistakes you have made. Yeah. The origin of this expression, though, this was a customary religious act in ancient India. In order to prove their religion, the devouts would throw butterballs at the statue of their gods in order to seek either forgiveness or favors. Yet again, kind of like the meaning of the expression we have today. Because this was ancient India, you would use ghee, which is this butter that you would apparently use just for, like, everyday cooking. But also, you as a worshipper would hope that the gods would reward you with peace and obviously good harvests, because that was what was important back in the day. This particular custom dates back all the way to 16,000 years before Christ. But then, there was a custom by the Tang Dynasty, so between 618 and 907, after the birth of the, of the Lord, the mighty, the Christ. And that custom was that during Tibetan New Year celebrations, sculptures would be made out of colored butter and then would be displayed during the New Year ceremonies as the gift to the gods, to the heavens. Yeah. It'd be interesting if somebody still follows, like, these very ancient customs today. You would let me know, right? I won't reveal your names. I'll just be like, okay, tell me what's your motive. <laughs> Why do you, like, throw butter on the statues? Just imagine somebody here starting a movement and throwing, like, the butter on the statues of, what, people at Trafalgar Square? They're not gods, Maya. Yeah. 
See, this is why you don't speak before you think. Because, like, your mind is catching up with the dumb shit that's coming out of it. Mind is catching up with the dumb shit that's already coming out of your mouth. And your mind is like, they're not gods. They're like colonizers. So, no. Nobody would do that. The second expression of the day, I... Okay, I don't know why. But I find this expression to be so sexual, so I had to cover it. There's nothing sexual in nature. The expression is go the whole nine yards. I mean, come on. It means go all the way, which immediately to me is like, ooh, going all the way, 19-year-old Maya, yeah. yeah. No, please tell them the whole story, Maya. Tell them the whole context. <laughs> it started in the fridge, please. Stop it. Nobody needs to know. It's already a shame enough to this family. Okay, my parents, please don't listen to this episode. <laughs> so, just imagine my parents would be like, oh, it started in the fridge. Logical. Didn't expect nothing much else. <laughs> Didn't expect much else. Didn't expect you to make us proud by losing your virginity. Alright. So, the origin of this expression came around during the World War II when the fighter pilots were equipped with nine yards of ammunition. What this means is the bullets for the machine guns used in American combat planes in World War II were in chains of 27 feet in length. So it was like nine, nine, nine. So if the pilot was able to fire all of his bullets off at a one target, he was said to have given somebody the full nine yards. Which again... It's like saying it today, like you're giving somebody like a sick... Is it, Maya? Is it? Is that even big? That's not... Ah, oh, God. I'm, I've been married for five years. I don't know what is big anymore in terms of like inches and big. No, because there's a foot long, right? Yeah, bitch, you know what's big. You're married to a black guy. There's a foot long. <laughs> This episode is just going downhill. This is gonna ruin this whole podcast experience for everybody. So there is a foot long, right? No, I'm actually measuring it for the camera. And then a six inch. So yes, foot long is what you aspire to. Don't quit your aspiration just because I can't define a big dick. No, my they were all, they're quitting the podcast. They're not quitting looking for big dicks. Jesus Christ. Alright, and then another. When it comes to this expression, it might have had a different origin. I mean, this is the one that most people agree on, but some people say that the nine yards might also refer to the length of pieces of fabric. So think like Indian saris or like Scottish kilts. During the 1800s and early 1900s, this kind of fabric would be sold in the standard length of nine yards. And the phrase that consolidated that this is definitely true appeared in 1855. And the phrase is, she has put the whole nine yards into one shirt. <laughs> it isn't sexual. There is absolutely nothing sexual with it. But, you know, if you want to go full nine yards for this podcast, make sure you subscribe to it. Subscribe to it on YouTube, subscribe to it on iTunes, on Spotify. It makes a difference. Leave a review if it is positive review. Being like, hey, Maya's teaching us sexual expressions. Confuse the people. It's like a true crime podcast. Confuse everybody. Make sure you follow me on the socials, that bam pod. And if you want to find me uh, personally, it is Maya's meltdown on most things, except from Instagram, which is kind of bland. But yeah, you can follow me there as well. It's Maya's passport. I change that to align them all. To align them all. And then, for the extra true crime fix that usually comes on Wednesdays and Fridays, on the YouTube channel, that is Maya Pabengeza. All of them are linked below. Follow the homegirl and go all the way for her, the way she started off in the fridge. And uh, now... It didn't end in the fridge. No. Do you want to tell the story? Do you just want to tell the whole story? No. No, you don't. So, now we're going to speak about a girl named Idoya and uh, her joining a terrorist organization because life and what this podcast is truly all about. So, whew, the swish, the swish transition, and we move to that. And I'll see you later. At the age of 16, these rebels from an underground movement approach you, asking you to join them. 
The group tells you they're fighting the power of the dictator of the country who has oppressed your region's political and cultural beliefs. You might have experienced some parts of this oppression on your own skin, and joining would mean that you're not just sitting on the sidelines, but are fighting for the independence. What would you do without knowing the extent this fight for independence would lead to? And now, what would you do knowing that this is the terrorist organization recruiting you in order to make you one of their most violent recruits? This is the story of Idoya Lopez Riano. Somebody cue the Killing Eve intro tune. No, no, uh, editor did not approve of that. Does not want to be copyrighted. Okay, Maya, you're in the presence of greatness. Hi. Welcome. You might have been lost just clicking on all of these like random icons of true crime cases, be like, what should I watch? What should I watch? How is this person going to grab my attention? Well, I'm here to tell you, you have been found. Bold statement, bold of you to think that. Well, if you like true crime and you like listening about stories of people who have been good, who have once been good, done good deeds, and then suddenly one day, boom, they decided to switch to crime, which is what this whole series, Gone Bad, is all about, this is the right place for you. I don't know what else to tell you. Today we are talking about Idoya Lopez Riano, who was a Spanish girl, just lived her normal random life up until the age of 16, which is when she has joined one of the most famous terrorist organizations in the world. So we're gonna talk about her life. There's not too many details on her kills. This isn't really like the Timothy McVeigh situation where all of her life was just radicalized. But we're gonna talk a bit about ETA, a bit about her life, how the two interconnected, and then the motives and how terrorist organizations actually recruit you. So why she might have fallen for this, or do we think, has she even fallen for it? Or are we thinking maybe she has joined for different reasons? So stick around and let's dive straight in. Going back in history, in 1939, Francisco Franco overtook from the Democratic Party in Spain after beating them in the war, and he started ruling Spain as a dictator through the Second World War and onwards. By this point, the Basque country, that encompasses three provinces in southern France and four provinces in Spain, is experiencing independence. But soon, under Franco, the Basque language suddenly got banned, their distinctive culture got suppressed, and also, under Franco, the intellectuals of the Basque country got imprisoned and tortured for their political and cultural beliefs. So in 1952, kind of halfway through Franco's ruling, this guy, Jose Luis Alvarez, and some of his friends met with other members of the Basque Nationalist Party. And they were kind of sitting down and just discussing the whole situations. The members of the Nationalist Party were actually in hiding because the government was after them. And they were just discussing, well, we are either waiting for Franco to die or for the Americans to take over. So let's just start a movement, like, without any particular violence. Let's just do what we see done by spies abroad. Let's create these small cells all throughout the Basque country, so that if one cell was to be discovered, well, then the whole organization isn't ruined. And also, from these cells, then we can spread propaganda. We can start with small acts of violence, such as graffiti, such as propagating our message. We will recruit large amounts of people throughout the country, and the only thing we need to ensure not to do is to ever have any civilian casualties. So even if we are sending a message in form of a violent act, it is never to harm any civilians. And this is how Euskadi Ta Azkatasuna, which stands for Basque Homeland and Freedom, first emerged. Already, by the end of 1959, ETA had between 200 and 250 members. So they were doing well in terms of passing on the message and also sticking to what they initially thought the group would be about. So the acts of violence were limited to painting graffiti on walls and statues stating Gora Euskadi or Go Basque Country. But then it escalated. 
Their first attacks were symbolic. They bombed the civil guard headquarters elevator and they also derailed a train that was heading to the celebration of the San Sebastian coup. So these were all tactical. Guardia Civil is the oldest law enforcement agency in Spain and the coup that I mentioned in San Sebastian was organized in 1936 and this coup would result in the split of the Spanish military and territorial control and would also lead to Francisco Franco getting into power. After the train derailment, though, over 100 Basques would be arrested, including the five ETA leaders. And once they were released, they would move the headquarters of the ETA to France, which is where they operated from ever since. As things are starting to heat up, Idoia Lopez Riano was born in San Sebastian on March the 18th, 1964. And really the reasons why Idoia might have joined the ETA in the first place probably started in her family. Everybody in Idoia's family was left-wing. They were socialists looking to overthrow capitalism and the wealthy ruling classes. And even though we don't have much information, I suspect they were radicalized in their beliefs because just even the fact that Idoia was born in San Sebastian was because they had to move there. You see, her grandfather, Froilan, was actually the supporter of the defeated Republic, so he had to flee with his whole family because the civil war swept the area. And as the socialist supporter, he would have been killed, just like the thousands of others. So he picked up the children and they ended up moving to the growing industrial region of San Sebastian. Lopez Riano was a working-class family, so Fräulein was a skilled carpenter and he had no issues finding work in this small town of Erenteria, where he would also make friends with thousands of poor southern Spanish residents looking for work and looking to find a new home. The situation between Franco and the Basque country just escalated. Thousands of Basques they would catch in any act of violence, would be arrested, would be tortured, sometimes sentenced to years in prison. One of their most famous attacks, like they were already seen as the terrorism organization around 1970, but one of the events that will consolidate this was when they attacked the admiral's car. It was said that this admiral was to become Franco's successor. So ETA thought, well, if we can't reach Franco, this is the second best. So on December the 20th, 1973, they planted explosives in the car of Admiral Luis Carrero Blanco. This was called Operation Ogre because that was the Admiral's nickname and to this day, the ETA still considers this one of their biggest successes towards ending fascism in Spain. Of course, what this meant is that now Franco isn't backing down because then he is the dictator, he is leading the country, he is going to be seen as a coward. So in 1975, he ordered that the Guardia Civil firing squad kill five political prisoners. Two of those political prisoners were ETA members. So this is when the country started protesting, boycotting Spanish products, calling the Spanish government murderers, and really seeing how bad this situation is. Because at this point, it was that bad that it was just about getting even. And Franco wanted to get even with ETA because at the time, only 33 Basques were killed by Guardia Civil, while 38 people were killed by the ETA. But before he could get even, one last time, he died in November that very year. After Franco's death, the democratic government moved to establish the regional autonomy for the Basque provinces, and also they started offering pardons to any ETA members that renounced terrorism, something that will become relevant in this story later. Slowly, what this meant for the Basque country was they started getting their own parliament, their own government, collecting their own taxes, controlling their own education, having their own police force. But this is truly, for me, the example of when the oppressed start turning into an oppressor, because nothing was enough. It wasn't moving fast enough, and nothing seemed to meet the level of the independence that they wanted. They aspired towards full independence, and they were gonna get it by all means necessary. And I want you to understand I'm here talking about the people that still remained in the ETA, that didn't renounce terrorism, that still stayed in this organization. I'm not talking about people just living their best lives in the Basque country. This is about, like, the radicalized people, 
But this is when it becomes just about proving how you are different from your oppressors, but you kind of become as bad or even worse while becoming the oppressor yourself, just for a different cause. And this is when La Tigresa came to play. In 1976, Idoya was known sort of as a party girl in the neighborhood. She started dating this guy near San Sebastian in Arenteria, still living with her family. And then one day she just stopped coming home. And what none of her family members knew is that in four years, at the age of 20, she will register her first kill. At the time of her first kill, ETA was involved in the so-called Dirty War against Grupo Antiterroristas de Liberación, or GAL, which was this secret Spanish state anti-terrorist group that was licensed by the Spanish Ministry of the Interior to seek out and kill the members in the ETA. Again, very much similar with, like, the Nazi spies and all of these infiltration groups, and then trying still not to be found out, even though the main dictator was technically dead. So, on the 9th of November the 16th, 1984, Idoya, under her alias in ETA, being Margarita, confronted this French citizen called Joseph Couchot in the Basque town of Irun and accused him of being the member of this Grupo Antiterroristas de Liberación before shooting multiple bullets and killing him on the spot. Because, you see, not many things are known about Idoya, but we know her M.O. The ETA was still not just targeting civilians, because that doesn't send a message to anybody. So they are targeting different admirals, different police officers, people in the government. So they would send their Margarita, La Tigresa, Idoya, who would go seduce them, make her way into their inner circle, and then go for the kill. Did anybody else notice how we don't hear from that boyfriend ever again? It's just like, yeah, yeah your girlfriend is literally, you know, using her sexual prowess, like, <laughs> seducing every single man in the hood, and then, like, shooting their brains out. He's just like, I mean, if I want to stay alive... <laughs> She kind of proved to, like, outscale me in this freaking game. Like, I brought you in, but now you keep shooting other people. Like, I'm out. I don't want nothing to do with this shit. Due to her MO, due to the knowledge of the others that she was cold and calculated and would not hesitate to pull the trigger, they eventually gave her more and more responsibilities. So, already at the beginning of the 80s, she was a lieutenant in the Madrid's ETA cell. But her biggest challenge to date, and the one that she is most famous for, was the bombing attack that resulted in 12 civil guards getting killed and 35 civilians being injured. Documents at the sentencing in 1989 stated that all of the terrorists decided altogether the most appropriate way to carry out this attack was with a car bomb. They parked up the car bomb at the place where the convoy used to pass, and they had all the time in the world to remove it, to withdraw on this plant, because the van was actually packed there for a couple of days until the Guardia Civil realized, okay, this doesn't seem like one of ours, so they removed it. But this didn't mean that the ETA and Idoya would back down. Instead, they came back in the early morning hours in order for this to be the most effective hit. On July the 14th, 1986, at 7.45 a.m., a convoy of the Armed Institute that consisted of a bus, a minibus, and a Land Rover, with 73 guards traveling in those cars, reached the back of the van which is when the ETA members operating the detonator control just press the button and the explosion hit the side of the bus fully, causing death of 12 guards and serious injuries to other 43 people. And this one broke all the rules in terms of ETA, what they stood for, what their mission was, because other 35 people that were just innocent passers-by were also injured in the process. What Idoya didn't really know already at the time of this attack, is that everybody was kind of looking at her, you know? She was kind of, like, in that disciplinary phase. Just she wasn't informed about it. The primary reason for this was that in June, so just a month before this attack, she kind of 
became reckless. I mean, this was a pattern, but this is when they started actually picking up because it led to consequences. So they had one of those missions where they would have like the submachine, like the rifles, you know, so they would just like point them at the targets in the car and they're waiting for the other cars to pass. Usually like the target car would be in the middle and that's the only shoot that she was to make. Like think Kennedy's assassination. But what Idoya has done, she got tired of carrying, you know, holding this submachine gun, so she just started shooting at, like, all of the cars passing by. So her superiors, her superiors got a bit concerned, so they just kind of probably put her on, like, her red list, and then they kept her there, and then she just kept fucking up in one event, which is truly so alike every Villanelle moment in Killing Eve. She missed a target because she was so entranced just staring at her own reflection in this shop window. One time she delayed the whole operation because she has lost her shoe, and of course, she is a fashionable woman, she can't. It won't be believable if she just puts, like, other shoes on. No, God forbid. Another operation had to be delayed because she had to do a pregnancy test. She was freaking out. And then one other, which I think at this point they were so done with this woman, she lost a gun. So, like, the commander was like, what do you mean you didn't bring gun from home? This is, like, your essential. This is, you know, requirements of a job. It's like if I showed up to work with no laptop, I was like, I'm just gonna sit here and chill, like, you know, customer service. I don't care anyways. To which her defense was, what do you want me to do? I forgot, period. And the commander was like, well, you're putting the whole unit at risk, like, multiple times, actually, because you're just shooting willy-dilly, you're forgetting your own gun, and you just cannot be relied on anymore. And one other reason why they were fed up with her is because she wouldn't change up her physical appearance. When it comes to this point, I kind of had to blame the ETA, big time, because she most probably had similar facial features when they hired her when she was 16. So suddenly, what became a problem was her huge hair. She does have the most distinctive curly hair out of probably everybody that I covered on this channel, but again, that's something that probably they should have realized before. Then, of course, they wanted her to wear colored lenses, to, like, put wigs on, to sort of, like, put different kind of makeup at different times, and she would just constantly refuse to do any of that. She was very much satisfied with how she looked like, and she was like, this is what works. I need to seduce them before I kill them. And yet again, the ETA was like, we didn't brief you to seduce them. Like, the kills? Yeah, we wanted that part. The seduction part of this is on you. Yet again, we never asked you to actually seduce these guys, possibly sleep with them, and kill them. That was never part of the equation, Idoya. Now, due to her insubordination, due to the constant clubbing, constantly not following the rules of the mission and just doing whatever the hell she wanted, ET-8 leaders forced her into exile in Algeria. And this is where she lived under the alias Tanya, which was inspired by the woman who fought alongside Che Guevara. Which is another tidbit that I find interesting because it happened in Patty Hearst's case. I'll link it below. I covered Patty Hearst's case for the podcast. The same principle, in a way, like of a girl being brainwashed by the Symbionese Liberation Army, so by another, you know, rebel group. SLA was somehow even more problematic with their ideals. But again, just as a comparison, because in Patty Hearst's case, they chose that name for her. Well, or that is what she claimed, whereas here she just didn't want to go as Margarita any further, so she chose it for herself. After she moved to Algeria, she was still working for the ETA, and if you thought she was going to suddenly calm the fuck down, well, you would have been wrong, because she just became more and more ruthless. Here, she joined the notorious commando unit that carried out the attacks in Barcelona, Valencia, Alicante, and Murcia. And here, what Luke Jennings stated in his book, Killing Eve, which the series was based on, just like Villanelle, developed that obsession with the FBI agent, who was played by Sandra Oh. Well, Idoya developed this obsession with the civil guard. Here, she really just developed further on her M.O. So, she would go to clubs, she would go to the bars, she would go home with them, have a one-night stand, 
get as much info from them as possible for her operations. And then that same night or the next day, she would just fire some bullets into them and then just leave them there. And after five years of just being nightmare for the ETA, they move her now to the south of France. And this is where she will actually get arrested in 1994. Here she was charged for the murder of the French citizen, the first victim that she shot when she was only 20. And then another guy, Angel Facal Soto, that she shot in 1985. The policeman, Maximo Antonio Garcia. The bombing of the Dominican Republic Plaza. The triple murder of three lieutenants that they could tie back to her from 1986 and the car bomb that killed five civil guards. I find this interesting because what that means is that they probably didn't even track any of her victims or tie them back to her once she actually moved to Algeria. So they just have the rough number of victims that she killed, which they rounded up at 23, but they can't ever be even fully sure. As she's in French prison in 1997, ETA kidnapped the local councillor for the ruling popular party in the Basque region called Miguel Angel Blanco. And in order to release him, they asked for 460 prisoners who were in jails all around Spain to be released and to come back to the Basque country. But the Spanish government didn't want to meet their demands, so the ETA members shot Blanco twice in the head. And now people in Spain, after so many years, finally realized that this just became too ruthless because they could support them through certain acts. Because you can sort of understand why a region would be fighting for the independence after so many years of oppression. But then once you reach a certain level, they probably started seeing that this isn't as different as the people that they were fighting against in the first place. More than 6 million people across Spain took to the streets over four days to demand the end to the ETA violence to demand the end to the ETA violence, and these protests are usually compared to the marches for the democracy. And these protests are usually compared to the marches for democracy that took place towards the end of Franco's regime. And as Idoya is serving her five years in France, the Spanish government is maintaining that they would never consider entering the talks towards further demands for Basque independence until they renounce violence completely. After five years, Idoya reaches Madrid Barajas airport on May the 9th, 2011, in handcuffs as she's being extradited from France to the Spanish prison. And now in Spain, yet again, we don't have details of the trial, but I have found like different articles in El País and they wanted to give her insane amount of years. I think it was settled at 2,000 years for all of the victims altogether. But then they realized the maximum prison sentence in Spain is 30 years. So it was reduced from, actually it was like 3,000 at some point, then 2,100, then 2,000. And then they were like, well, this doesn't really matter because the most we can give her is 30 years. So they gave her 30. And in prison, somehow, Idoya continues doing what she does best. She got married twice. First time in 2004 to the guy called Juan Ramon Rojo. And the second one, they don't even really know which year, to Joseba Arismendi Oirazabal. Not just that, but in order to show her good character and in order to further then be able to apply for parole down the line, well, she wrote a letter to the judge in 2011 renouncing the violence, denouncing the terrorist group completely, which also meant that the ETA retaliated and they had to denounce her then. In the letter, roughly, she wrote something like this. The deaths of this command hurt me in the depths of my soul, and even more not having been able to do anything to prevent them. I was only 20 years old, and even so, I risked my life in that attempt. It cost me seven years of my life in Algeria, and then I was sentenced to a terrible punishment. It hurts me, all the dead people. 
This did piss off the ETA, but imagine how much harder it pissed off the families of the victims. That just, you know, somebody is tactically, again, because everything they have done in their life has been due to pure freaking tactics and manipulation. And somebody's just now like, oh, all of these victims, they hurt me. They hurt my soul. And then a couple of years after that, you realize that they're being released from prison, not even because their parole has been approved, no. In 2016, she was actually released from prison to go and obtain her driver's license. In order to let her renew her driver's license, apparently she had to write, like, another letter to the court saying, you know, she couldn't prevent any of these attacks. And also the court then had to study the list of victims that she had, which was a lengthy motherfucking list. And they were satisfied that none of them lived in her town where she would be renewing her driver's license. So they agreed to give her, like, a couple of days to go you know, drive again, chill around outside of the prison. And this is apparently the measure that Spain implemented for the terrorists from the ETA in the attempt to reintegrate them back into the community. They had to openly ask for the forgiveness from all of the victims, because, of course, that proves that they are a great person. They had to declare that they rejected violence and break away from the ETA and accept responsibility for paying any compensation to the survivors and the next of kin. This I couldn't find if she was actually requested to pay any compensation but hey, she did get out for a few days to renew her driver's license. And then on June 13, 2017, she was released from serving her sentence, as in forever. She served 23 years, which is one year for each victim. The last information I could find on Idoya is that she moved to this village of Villar de Siervo near the Portuguese border. And well, somebody conducted an interview with her family, I think it was 2017, which is how we know that her grandfather and her father and everybody were very much left-wing and socialists. And in that interview, her mom said, yep, she moved, she turned her life around and now works for Red Cross in that area. And then I think this journalist followed up and rang up the Red Cross in that area. And in the plot twist of a century, she doesn't actually work there. Another article that I found in the Olive Press from 2017 stated she first moved to Andorra, where her sister lives, and then finally settled in Barcelona, where she just continued learning languages, which is also one of her many traits that aided her in catching victims for the ETA. Whichever version of events you might believe, I am personally not convinced that any of the two that I just mentioned are completely true. Because if Idoya does have a single skill, it is to turn into a chameleon and to be whoever she wants to be and live her best life. Unlike 23 people that she had killed. That is the story of Idoya Lopez Riano. Now let's briefly discuss what could have motivated this. Because when you hear this whole story, you're like, Okay, cool. You can kind of understand if you have, like, grandparents or if you yourself have witnessed some level of oppression. You kind of get it. But let's speak about how these terrorist organizations really crack this down when it comes to the recruitment tools, because then it might be easier to sort of understand what might have motivated her to join. According to her mother, she joined the ETA because she was impressionable. She was 16 years old, dating an older guy, and also there was the cultural turbulence in the region, which might have further affected her. And her mother might have been onto something here, because there are reasons why terrorist organizations target youth. And there are four reasons which we should be really taking into the account. The first one, and probably the one that is hardest to resist, it is the exposure to violent extremist propaganda. And something you need to think about when it comes to this particular age range, it is how you hear about it in school as well. Because she was still 16. She was still within school, obviously young and impressionable, you know, wanting to be cool, wanting to date like an older guy. 
But even beyond that, even beyond somebody coming up to you on the street when you were 16 and selling you dreams, selling you hopes, what you hear within classrooms, like stuff we heard within history classes, probably shaped the ideologies that we have about who was right, who was wrong within certain wars. So this probably happened with Idoya as well during this particular time when you can't see anything objectively at all. And when you have one dictator who is technically ruling what is in your history books. Then you would have both social or political marginalization, Basque country experience both, permissive family and social networks. Well, here we don't really know in too much detail whether her family looked for her, whether they tried to get her to denounce ETA, whether they filed missing persons report, like all the normal protocols, we don't really have the information on this. We just know that one night she just disappeared and that the next thing they knew, well, she killed multiple people. Geographic proximity also plays a huge role and then economic instability. The whole of her family was working class. They were all working in different trades. So again, as a factor when recruiting somebody into a terrorist organization, you can always overpromise them on every single one of these factors. You can promise them, yes, you're fighting for a cause, but you will also always be provided for live within a community that is fighting the same fight as you do. And when you're 16, you might not know better. And when we are talking about young people joining voluntarily, so not being kidnapped and then brainwashed, like in the case of Patty Hearst and so many other terrorist organizations, well, they either join for one of these six motives. The search for group-based identity, ideological appeal of the group, real or perceived exclusion, grievance, or cultural threat, the potential for economic gain or long-term economic stability, prospects of fame, glory, or respect, and personal connections, including family and friendship networks within that group. And don't get me wrong, there are people like Luke Jennings who did write Killing Eve, that the whole TV series is based on, who think that she joined this group purely because she was a psychopath, because she showed this with her actions after she joined. She didn't denounce it until, again, it was all about her, until she was about to get out of the prison. Why didn't she denounce it at any point? She went to, like, France, she went to Algeria. They literally didn't even want her. Why not denounce somebody that really doesn't even care about you at some point? And that would be an interesting area to explore, which I don't think it was ever done. I don't think they were ever mentally assessed to check if they were at best sociopaths or psychopaths as to why did they continue when they voluntarily joined. Because on how many occasions during this story I told you about her recklessness that just resulted in more victims. And she personally clearly didn't really care whether it resulted in one or ten casualties. So I think he might be onto something here. I personally think one of the main motivations for me that stuck out on that list was the prospect of glory, fame, respect, and just the wish to do something about the situation. And let me end this on something that I haven't told you about, Idoya, and with a quote from one of those letters that she sent to the judge. After her schooling, Idoya actually hoped to become a firefighter, but as we know, she became the ETA fighter instead. In 2015, she wrote this letter to the judge, in which she said, I became involved with ETA at a very young age, full of romantic and idealistic ideas, and those who captured me knew straight away how to make me choose. Would you prefer to save a few people as a firefighter or a whole town? We need committed kids like you. So that is apparently how they got her. It's just like the ethical dilemma of, you know, the little train and like, does it hit one person or does it hit 12? And she chose, yeah, let me hit only one person because I'm the ethical goddess and I can save the world. That is how I'm going to leave you to ponder on that quote, whether or not she might have seen an ethical appeal to joining a terrorist organization. Whether she knew better, what would you have done at the age of 16? Would you have been convinced? 
And most importantly, what would have motivated you to stay once you saw all of the atrocities committed? Because that is the part where I'm like, you know, I I can buy the theory that you were a sociopath or a psychopath because once you see all of the dead people, once you see that the bomb that you have driven to a location killed all of these casualties, killed the civilians, killed innocent people, and you just proceed like it's nothing... It is at best because you are vain and want some form of recognition. And at worst, because even today, you might be up to something that ain't Red Cross. Skamillion is out there and we should familiarize ourselves with this face, you know? When you go on holiday to Barcelona and you see Doya, say the fuck, back the fuck up. (laughs) When you go to holiday to Barcelona, to like Siervo place next to Portugal, wherever, to just be aware. If you see a bush of curly hair, stay away. Everybody's like with the curly hair now hating my guts. I don't mind. I'm just trying to protect us soul, okay? She's still feisty. She's like 56. Wait, when was she born? Six four. She's 57. She's still kicking. She's still probably dangerous. Back off from curly-haired woman at La Playa and just drink your mojito and you enjoy, enjoy your life. Enjoy it. And don't grow a beard like Ricky Martin in his new video with Carlos Vives or whatever it is. Just don't, please. <laughs> Just, you know, the additional what not to do, you back away, don't approach the curly-haired woman, and also stop looking like Santa Claus. Like, <sighs> okay, <laughs> now I'm gonna <laughs> bring you the actual outtakes, which apparently this should belong to, but it just does not. So, and I will see you tomorrow. If I edit everything right, I will see you tomorrow. Hope you, hope, hopefully, whole team of editor, writer, script writer, commentator to finish everything for you by tomorrow, because I'm really excited about this one, okay? So make sure you like and subscribe for more content coming at you. And now, bye everybody. Bye. Did you want to say this gusto, Maya? They were a bit like unappeased. It's like a bit, mmm. I'm doing a Spanish class. No huele bien. No huele bien. <laughs> Imagine if he actually smelled. You know, something we don't know about the rulers from like whenever. History. It's like, did they smell well? What kind of perfumes did they have? Did they have those, like, granny perfumes? You know, when you pass somebody on the street (laughs) and they smell like old people and you're like, why? Why are you not using Britney's fantasy like everybody else? Going a bit down the (laughs) memory lane. (laughs) It's memory lane. None of them were alive, probably. Were you alive in 1939? (laughs) How old is she? Somebody do the math for me and you can tell me later. <laughs> Wait, yeah, she was born 64. Come on, Maya, you can do the math. I believe in you. I believe in you. Okay, 64 now. The speed this process up. It's embarrassing. <laughs> it's embarrassing. I don't know which year we are in. She's 57, everybody. I took a calculator. Why did I just drink a hot beverage? Like, what is my actual problem? <laughs> I'm fucking sweating on camera. That is always a vision. I forgot how YouTubing went in the summer. <laughs> Laughs in Spanish. Do you know how Netflix... I, f- I swear I've seen this somewhere. Netflix got, like, really relaxed. I mean, in terms of, like, <laughs> actually translating things. <laughs> I don't know where I've seen this. I think it was, like, all over TikTok, where now they don't, like, translate, like, you know, French, Spanish, like, languages. They don't, like, put subtitles on the screen. They're just, like, speaking in Spanish. (laughs) Yet another reason for you to become multilingual. Yet another reason for you to start learning languages. Also, yet another reason to subscribe to my channel, because you know, you know that my partnerships, if I was to partner with anybody, it would be language learning apps, because... Homegirl. Yeah. Duolingo, Memorize, Babel. You want them? You want those discount codes? Subscribe to this channel. For the future prospective partnerships. Believe in me. Believe in me like I believe in you. 9 to 5. What a way to make living. 9 to 5. What a way to make living. 
the whitest girl dance. Why do the hands always need to be up? Why? Ooh, ooh, white girl. Ooh, white girl. <laughs> I am not proud of this. I am not proud of any single or multiple white girl moments in my life. Let me just address the situation. I look in you the eyes. I am not proud to be white. I'm mentioning it because I've seen this bio of this girl on TikTok. <laughs> She's like white and proud. And I just really wanted, you know, to ask why. Like, just why though? Like, what, what's there to be proud of? Girlfriend, drop it in the comments, hey. Confuse the others who haven't made it to the outtakes. Wow, that was a story. It was a story. Do you see any similarities between her and Villanelle? from Killing Eve, because many people, including me, at times don't. And it's not just because of the looks difference, it's not just because of the looks difference, but I mean, it does play into, you know, once you think about somebody visually. And when thinking about motives, do you think she was impressionable, or do you think, like, there was more of a vanity playing there, because there was nothing in her family, like, none of her family members did join the ETA, so... Again, was it just the fact that she wanted some fame and acknowledgement, and this is the only way she saw to get it when she was 16, and then just never got out of it, and then denounced it when she needed to only? Well, you let me know what you think. You know where to find me. I told you in the beginning, it's that bam pod all across the yards. And then it is podbam at gmail.com if you want to do the snail mail and for me to read the snail mail on the air. Next week, I'm bringing you a heartbreaking case, probably with like, you know, the, the mic that I actually talk into, you know, the whole nine yards of that mic. And then I believe, I'm leaving, mm -hmm, excellent, the most famous case for last because life. That is how this podcast truly works. But until then, you make sure it's a Monday, you are working 9 to 5. Maybe, if you are, say yourselves, quit it, take a sicky day, don't, don't, my, you should not be responsible for any job quittings. But make sure that whatever you decide to do, you do it for your soul, and you make this world what? A better place. One motive at a time. Bye, fuckers. <laughs> Bye. Going back. <laughs> Working nine to five. What a way to make living. Motives. <laughs>